Hello, everybody. Welcome to History Hit. It is Holocaust Memorial Day. It's the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau, the concentration camp, by the Soviet Red Army in 1945. I was shocked to learn today that 5% of people believe the Holocaust did not exist. That is very disturbing. Uh, it's grotesquely offensive. And it shows that we have a problem in our society around how we're transmitting important information from the past to younger generations. I went to Gross Rosen concentration camp in Poland, what is now Poland, a couple of years ago. It's a place where the, average, the life expectancy of the Poles, Jews, Soviets, and Eastern Europeans that were interned there was measured in weeks rather than years. There were no medical facilities at all. Six latrines for something like 600 inmates when uh, the camp opened. And the local granite quarry they used to work in was well known as a place where inmates would hurl themselves to their death rather than face the beatings and privations of life at the camp. It was a remarkable place, I'll never forget. And I also remember the Polish historian that showed me around. She told me that in the last 10 years, there has been a catastrophic falling off of historical literacy around the Holocaust of the guests that she takes around, the visitors that come around. So lots of work to do, everybody, lots of work to do. And it's an important reminder, everyone, that history isn't just a kind of antiquarian pursuit. It's not just how we talk about events, tell stories about the past. It's it's about our identity. It's about our politics, about where we think we're going and what we think is going on in the world. Couldn't be more important, everyone. I know I'm preaching the converted here, but history, it matters. Uh, today on the pod, I've got Paul Stickler. Um, he's a criminologist and crime historian, having been a policeman for decades. He was a member of CID, which in the UK are those police men and women who are involved in murder investigations. He's also gone across the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, to study international perspectives of criminal investigation. He retired about 10 years ago, and now he writes books about historical murders and sort of really kind of attempts to solve them. It's very exciting. His new book is about a bizarre murder investigation in Hertfordshire just after the First World War, so a character of the centenary. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, lots going on at History Hit. This is the last week of HistoryHit.tv's ridiculous, ridiculous sale. Thank you all to all the vast numbers of you that have been signing up, trying to ruin me, but uh, it's all good. Pod 5, P-O-D 5, if you enter that when you go to HistoryHit.tv, when you sign up, you will pay just one pound, euro or dollar for the next five months. That's ridiculous. You'll get a 30-day free trial. So effectively, it's now taking you up to July. July. I mean, that's almost next year for just five pounds, euros or dollars in all. Many advantages doing that. I've actually just finished watching program on Bletchley Park that's on there. It's rather good, if I don't say so myself. Uh, and you can also get all of these podcasts ad-free, ad-free podcasts on historyhit.tv for just one pound, euro or dollar for the first five months. I mean, it's ridiculous. Speaking of the podcast, starting on the podcast tomorrow, we've, we've got a little experiment here. We've got the Game of Thrones star, Ian Glenn, the legend Ian Glenn, is doing a brand new audio drama on this podcast about the period that inspired Game of Thrones author George Martin to write that gigantic set of books. Yes, as the dust is barely settled from the wars that tore Britain apart in the 15th century, the wars between the House of York and Lancaster, Henry VII sits on the throne and a, a pretender tries to reclaim the throne for the House of York. Ian Glenn, brand new audio drama, tomorrow on the pod. Enjoy. 
All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Paul, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Well, the pleasure is all mine. I've never, this is very unusual for me. Tell the audience, I've had hundreds of historians on here in my time, but they've tended to be archive heroes. You are someone who's actually been out there on the front line. Tell me a little bit about your career before you started writing and talking about history. Well, I was in the police for 30 years, and during the course of my career, I went on to CID, and I started to specialise in uh, murder investigations, and that's what got me interested in it probably 15, 20 years ago, actually. But when I retired back in 2008, uh, my passion was history. And so all I've done really is merge the industry of murder, as I like to call it, uh, with my passion for history. And I've been researching historical murders probably for the last five, six years or so. And that's what led me on to the, uh, the publication of the book. Don't feel bad about this, but have you actually solved, I mean, obviously you haven't solved because we have a court of, we have a due process in this country, but have you, have you made big breakthroughs in any, any big historical murders? In terms of identifying suspects, as people call them, cold cases, no. But I've unearthed lots of new information, fresh information, uh, and over the last five, six years, I've un- uncovered original material which never been seen before. And as a result of that, I've been able to interpret that and then write about it. So I've certainly unearthed uh, fresh information, but particularly around individual cases. But where I've been going for the last few years, I suppose, is trying to understand how policing was conducted uh, in the interwar period between 1919 and 1939. And a lot of that information about how the police conducted themselves and the detail behind some of these these investigations have never been brought to the surface before. And I'm really enjoying uh, talking about this stuff and, and putting it out there for other people to hear about. And have you just, have you just come across weaknesses in how mainstream historians are able to talk about crime, society, uh, conflict in in the past? Because you actually have got this your own personal expertise, you know, there's such, there's such depth, you know so much about policing, about murder investigations, about crime itself, that you feel you've been able to bring, bring some of that experience and make a, make a real contribution to the field. Well, I, th- I believe I do, and that's because, as you say, I've got this understanding about how the police operate, even you know, obviously in contemporary times, but I've got a far greater understanding now how the police operated back in the 1920s. And most historians, most of the dozens, you know, hundreds of books that I've read about this sort of subject generally talk about the uniform policing how the police are perceived political attitudes towards policing but they focus predominantly on the victorian period and i've got this issue that the 19 that the period between 1919 and 1939 has been largely neglected and people just talk about a killed b and it went to court or someone found guilty or not guilty i'm much more interested and my contribution to the knowledge is my interest around how the police they got there did the law support them did the people support them what was their training what was the expertise what was the level of forensic science at the time Uh, and i interpret that in a way that i don't believe has been in, uh, written about, certainly not not to any great extent. There have been one or two significant historians like Clive Emsley, for example, who do re- write about this stuff. But I, it's an area that's been largely neglected. And what I'm bringing to the fore, a particular that I brought out uh, in the book there about Mrs Ridgely's murder, was about how the police used the information and the powers they had to interpret that uh, and how they were able to either solve or not solve cases based on that type of knowledge. Well, you're being very modest. So I just want to pin you down on this one point because it makes me nervous because I love 18th century history, particularly maritime uh, military and naval history. 
I want to know whether I could actually, I can write well about that despite not having served before the mast in, a, in an 18th century man of war, because that would have been tricky. Do you think that you are a better historian because of, of this wealth of experience you bring to it? I think the, the answer to that can only be yes, and that's because I have a passion about it. Because when I read the material, I read a document author perhaps in 1910, 1920, 1930, I can almost read between the lines and I can see what that police officer or what those witnesses are saying, and I can see how they're constructing the investigation. So I have that in-depth, subliminal knowledge about how these cases were investigated. And because of that, I'm able to put a little bit more, a different sheen, if you like, on what I'm finding out. And when I give these presentations, and I give presentations to many, many people, and the feedback I always get is, you're so passionate about your subject, and you said things there which I've never heard before. So if you're getting that type of feedback from people routinely, you tend to think that perhaps I'm doing this, I'm doing this okay. But what I want to do and where I'm going at the moment is trying to do that better, of course, and my research is getting more intense and I'm enjoying it more and more. Well, uh, that's great news. So tell me about your most recent study. Set the scene. When does it all begin? It all begins in January of 1919, because that's a period of history that people are very interested in, because it's just after the First World War. It's a legacy of the First World War. People didn't have money in their pockets. They're bruised and battered because of the violence that they were witnessed to. Many people were witnessed to, of course, in the First World War. And in January 1919, as a shopkeeper in Hitchin in Hertfordshire called Mrs Ridgely, Elizabeth Ridgely, uh, who had a, a corner shop. And effectively, it was a gold mine selling everything you'd need for the household. And on the 27th of January, when she couldn't be roused on a Monday morning, the police uh, broke into the property and found Mrs Ridgely in her house. Uh, it was a converted house stroke shop with significant, very brutal head injuries, dead. And lying next to her was her dog, also with significant brutal head injuries, also dead. And the place was covered in blood. Uh, money had been stolen and it really was a scene of some brutality and violence. And what I found particularly fascinating about this was within 48 hours, the local Hertfordshire constabulary concluded that this was nothing more than a tragic accident, despite the fact she had all these brutal injuries to her head and there was a the murder weapon was clearly laying next to her, which is one of these iron four-pound weights used for weighing in kitchens. And uh, despite that, they concluded it was an accident and they buried her. The events that then took place was that the chief constable of Hertfordshire, a man called Alfred Law, was really concerned, because he had been away at the time, he was really concerned about the investigating officer's conclusions, which simply didn't stack up. And he referred the matter to Scotland Yard. Uh, and a man called Chief Inspector Fred Wensley came in, who was an eminent detective of his time, and he would conduct a, a better investigation, a much more thorough investigation. And eventually, a man was charged with the murder. And it brought to the fore, this is really what sparked my interest in this particular period. Why did Hertfordshire not seek the advice and support of Scotland Yard initially rather than do it themselves? And the state of policing just after the First World War in the provincial forces, less so in the cities and certainly in the Metropolitan Police, but the state of policing in the provincial forces it appeared, was rather past, to say the least. It was pretty poor. And most forces had not invested in any detective ability nor training. And many chief constables just saw investigations and detective as very much part of the, the uniform officer's role. So they had never invested. And as a consequence of that, you had some very sad and poor, incompetent uh, investigations, which led to many cases, of course, not being solved. So I got became fascinated in what happened when Scotland Yard then got called in. So it sounds to me like that joke in Blackadder when someone accidentally on purpose chops their head off while yachting or something. So <laughs> there's, there's this appalling... I mean, even that's... You've painted it as a, as a pretty obvious murder scene. 
they, they can, do we know why they didn't think it was a murder with her, or was it just profound um, incompetence? Well, the police officer who went to the scene, the constable, he had six years service. He's a lad called Alf Kirby. He instantly recognised, and you can see this in his reports that he wrote at the time, he instantly recognised that this was a case of murder. He did everything he could to preserve the scene. But as soon as his senior officers got there, and particularly the superintendent, he started to walk round and just pick up pieces of evidence and destroy evidence. All the fingerprints in blood were destroyed. And as I say, within 48 hours, he had concluded it was an accident. Now, there's one or two things going on here. One is either they're so incompetent because of lack of instruction, lack of guidance, lack of training, or, and I think it's possible in this case, the uniformed officer, the uniform superintendent who took charge of this investigation, who had no detective training or experience at all, he was to retire within three months. And he wanted to retire before the First World War. But because the First World War came along, police officers were largely not allowed to retire because obviously some went to the war uh, and those left back at home were required to police the streets of England, police the problems of England and Wales. And I think it was the case that the superintendent decided that he wanted an easy retirement and he concluded this is a terrible accident. When you read his report, and I've got the original pencil-written report in his handwriting, you can see his mindset. You can actually understand and see inside his head what he's trying to say. He's constructing his report because he writes certain sentences and then crosses them out so you can see what he's thinking. And he said this is a tragic accident. What happened was Mrs Ridgely was walking around the house. She fell over and she hit her head on a number of pots and pans strewn about the floor because, as I say, this is a shop. Then she got up, dazed, and wandered around the house dropping blood everywhere and then fell down again, accidentally killing her dog, as she did so. It just doesn't stack up. It absolutely doesn't stack up at all. So I think it's only right that when the Chief Constable came along, he read this report, he said to himself, that can't be right. But rather than upset the superintendent, a man called George Reed, he decides to go to Scotland Yard. And again, this is interesting because the Chief Constable's already under a huge amount of stress and pressure. He'd recently challenged another one of his senior officers, another superintendent, and as a result of that, the superintendent committed suicide and left a note saying, I've only committed suicide because of the chief constable. So you can just imagine how Alfred Law was rather concerned about all this and said, I'm not going to challenge Reed about his conclusion on this murder. I think what I'll do is go straight to Scotland Yard. And now Scotland Yard, plus the Home Office, have been saying to police forces since before the First World War, if you get a complicated case such as a murder and you don't know who the offender is you really ought to be getting hold of the services of Scotland Yard because we're pretty proficient and we've got a lot of expertise because obviously the Metropolitan Police uh, had been formed back in 1829 and their CID had developed exponentially over the last 50 to 60 years up until the late Victorian period and they had a lot of experience. So they said to provincial forces, if you've got a complicated case, you make sure you refer it to us. Yet the superintendent in this particular investigation didn't. And you can see that in a number of other murders I've looked at in provincial forces in this period. Some did contact the yard, others didn't. Others wanted to do it themselves. Now, whether there's a cultural reason for that, that's interesting to look up, or whether they just simply didn't see the uh, advantage of contact in Scotland Yard, some, which is what I'm, uh, is the issue I'm really concerned with now, and that's my current piece of research. So all this package of affairs that took place up in January 1919 in Hitchin uh, with Mrs Ridgely 
forced me to ask the question, how was policing going on at that time? How proficient were they? What was their training? What were the laws? And why were they getting it wrong on so many occasions? Well, it's interesting because up until this point, Scotland Yard had been held in very high regard by the public and in newspapers. You know, we've got a professional police force, probably the best police force in the world. They're solving murder after murder. Jack the Ripper, of course, aside, uh, they're very proficient investigating murders. And yet, as a result of this case, Mrs Ridgely, and another one a few weeks later, well, a, a young lady called Nellie Rault was murdered in Bedfordshire. They didn't solve that one either. The Metropolitan Police were called out to do that. There then followed a series of murders in the provincial areas, so outside London, where the Metropolitan Police were called in to investigate by their murder squad, a murder squad which had been formed in 1907. And all of a sudden, they're not solving these cases. Now, that's not because they were deficient. It's because the Metropolitan Police were largely called in too late. So the provincial force would try and do something for a week or two, in some case six weeks, two months before they called them in. And of course, by the time the yard turned up, a lot of the evidence has simply disappeared. But the point is, the newspapers, the national newspapers are saying, hold on a minute, Scotland Yard perhaps aren't as good as we've been writing. Perhaps they're, they're, they're not as good as they think they are. And so it started to change the mindset and the attitudes of the public towards certainly Scotland Yard, but probably towards policing in general. And as a result of that, a number of inquiries and committees were set up by the Home Office with a view to reviewing the detective abilities of provincial forces. So it's a fascinating period, which has been largely neglected isn't the right word, but it certainly hasn't been written about to the same extent as Victorian policing, nor, of course, policing in the First World War and the Second World War, which is why I've become particularly interested in this period. And tell me, what did Scotland Yard make of it when they got involved? On this particular well, on the, uh, this particular case? Well, they knew straight away it was a murder. They called in a, a man called Bernard Spilsbury, who was the eminent forensic pathologist of the time. Uh, they exhumed the body of Mrs Ridgely, and he quickly determined not only that she had been murdered, uh, but also the fact that whilst still alive, she had even been dragged around the house by hair, causing all sorts of injuries. And so this knowledge was available at, at the time. So Scotland Yard made the... Conclusion, very quickly, this was a murder, supported, of course, by the local chief constable, and they couldn't understand how anybody could have concluded otherwise. So they saw it for the mess that it was, and when you read the um, the paperwork written by Wensley at the time and his reports subsequent to the investigation, he makes it quite clear that he wasn't well supported when he arrived in the local forces. The local police forces hadn't done the most basic of things, including photographing the scene, and I've been incredibly lucky to found the original photographs that Wensley, as the Metropolitan Detective, commissioned to be taken. And I've got those original photographs. No photographs simply weren't taken. The scene wasn't preserved. Witnesses weren't spoken to. So they realised that this was a huge mess. Uh, And as a result of this, Wensley commissioned a report. Provincial forces are much more encouraged to get in contact with Scotland Yard at a very, very early stage. Uh, and even Wensley was probably, probably the person who founded the, the Flying Squad, even as we know it today, because they realised that society is changing. We're not living in this Victorian period anymore. Things have moved on, particularly after the First World War. We've got travelling criminals, transports come along, they travel around by car. Forensic knowledge has developed quite significantly. And yet, and yet, provincial forces don't seem to have grasped this at all because policing was still seen very much by chief constables and politicians as 
deterring crime, uh, making sure it didn't happen in the first place. So uniform presence, the patrols on the streets, and they didn't invest in detectives because they didn't really see the need. So the period between the 1920s and 1930s sees the significant development of what today we will call the detective, the criminal investigation department, and provincial forces started to create their professional detectives, but probably not until probably the 1940s, into the first Second World War and after the Second World War. So again, between the 20s and 30s, it, this was an embryonic period uh, of the detective that, as we know it today, much more investigator. Because even Victorian detectives were largely just people who dressed up in uh, undercover work and they did the disguise work, dressed up as butchers and they did surveillance following people around. But now they recognise this is much more requirement now to be able to investigate and use the ability of the law and use the ability and the knowledge uh, of developing forensic science. So it's a, it's a fascinating period. So the Metropolitan Police saw this for the mess it was. Now, listen, everyone's going to buy your book. What's the book called? It's called The Murder That Defeated Whitechapel Sherlock Holmes at Mrs Ridgely's Corner. And why did it defeat Whitechapel Sherlock Holmes? Well, Fred Wensley, the guy I spoke about, the uh, detective chief inspector, he became he was known at the time in the national newspapers as probably... Britain's cleverest detective. And as I say, he had a, a stellar career in the East End of London and when he was posted onto the uh, the murder squad. And the number of people who have written about Fred Wensley, and it's quite a bit of literature about him, started to get labelled in the popular press as Whitechapel's Sherlock Holmes, uh, for obvious reasons. And so the case that defeated... Uh, this is the first case, the first murder that Wensley did not solve... But it principally defeated him, of course, not because of his abilities or lack of abilities, but principally because, of course, the um, Hertfordshire Constabulary had wiped away all the evidence and buried the body. So he wasn't off to a good start. He was on the back foot as soon as he got there. Having done all of the research now, who do you think did it? Tell me. Come on. Everyone's going to buy the book. Don't, it won't ruin the ending. Well, it, it doesn't ruin the ending. Because actually, the book makes it quite clear that Fred Wensley arrested an Irishman who was a veteran of the First World War. He had fought at the Battle of Mons. He was in the Royal Army Medical Corps. He got discharged in 1916 because he's done his uh, already completed his 12 years service. So he didn't have to spend the rest of the war in the colours. So he left in 1916. He was a terrifically violent man before the war. And I suspect that his exposure to some of the atrocities on the Western Front would have only aggravated that. So he came back from the war, quite a violent man. He was very violent towards his wife. We've got plenty of evidence to support that. Very violent towards his colleagues back in Southern Ireland, uh, from where, where he came. Uh, and then he arrives in Hitchin in Hertfordshire in the November of 1918. And again, he was violent towards his wife and violent towards his his landlady, etc. And on the day he was arrested, he was found with dog bites and his, on, on his backside and his, his trousers were torn. He had dog bites on his hand. He had no money at all prior to the murder and yet the following day he was able to pay his rent and his lodging for two weeks and he had money in his pocket. But, but there are also two significant witnesses, one who saw him outside the shop just before the murder, I'm talking minutes before the murder, and another person saw him actually inside the shop about half an hour before the murder, yet he denied it being anywhere near the scene. So put all that together, and there's quite a few other bits of evidence as well. There was a quite a strong circumstantial case against this man who, who was called John Healy. The jury were out for 12 minutes, and they found him not guilty, which caused a lot of furore, and a lot of people starting to talk about it in Hitchin. Of course, the Metropolitan Police and politicians starting to get really concerned about the ability to solve these cases, but also raised the issue about why Healy, an Irishman, was acquitted and there was a deal of 
acrimony between Healy and the rest of the town, pretty much. And this is what Healy said himself. The only reason you've picked on me is because I'm Irish. And, of course, this is right in the heights, the peak of the the, uh, the Anglo-Irish debate about uh, the independence, independence of Ireland. And it could have been a case that the jury were sympathetic towards him. But his argument, Healy's argument, was, of course... The only reason you've arrested me is because I'm Irish. I had nothing to do with that. But when you read all the evidence, it has to be said it was pretty strong. Uh, most murders, even today, are circumstantial evidence. But this strong circumstantial evidence. And yet after 12 minutes, 12 minutes, I mean, it's an amazingly short time, he's acquitted. So again, it just, it just uh, lends itself to the question, who did it? My argument in the book is I'd be very surprised. I think it's highly improbable that Healy did not do it. But of course, if you're found not guilty, you are innocent in law, and that's it. The question is, who did it? Uh, I think it's probably Healy, but I was incredibly lucky. Having written the book, this is quite annoying, you write a book, you send it off to your publisher, and then you find another document, and by sheer luck I found this other document, and it's original papers from 1919, and in it... There's a, a report by one, the police officer, Kirby, I mentioned, who went to the scene in the, in the first instant. In this report, and quite incongruously, he mentions that the police had identified uh, another man and he was clearly searched on the day of the murder, and yet that person never featured in the investigation. So, and there's an outstanding witness, there's an outstanding person seen in the shop just for the murder. And I just debate it. How, how likely is it this unknown person seen in the shop could have been this other person as seen by the police officers or as seen by the witnesses? So I do put it out there to suggest, you know, we've got to, we've got to get this right. They should have got it right at the time. But if Healy didn't do it, there is a possibility that the police had stumbled across this other guy, but he never featured in the investigation, which, again, you have to ask the question, why? But to answer your question, I think it's quite likely that Healy did it, but he was found not guilty. OK, final question. What's the biggest thing that you guys have got in your shot locker that Healy didn't have? I mean, is it is it you know, scientific forensics or, or, or is it data or is it CCTV? You know, what, what's the one thing that, that's just transformed uh, homicide investigations now? Forensic science, mainly. If you go back to 1919, it was possible then, even then to tell the difference between human blood and animal blood. It was even possible pathologically to distinguish between human A and human B. And, of course, you needed this for um, blood transfusions, which has done a lot, of course, on the battlefields of World War I. So it's possible to determine whether someone's a blood group O or blood group A, and yet this wasn't done at the scene of this murder. And actually, blood group analysis, proving that this blood came from a particular person, didn't feature in the criminal courts until the early 1930s, some, you know, 10, 15 years after the events of 1919. So forensic science has taken on policing quite significantly and because of the development of DNA and better blood grouping, etc., we are where we are today, much more advanced. Wonderful. Well, you've heard. Tell us the book one more time and I look for it. I hope everyone will go and buy it. Uh, the Murder That Defeated Whitechapel's Sherlock Holmes at Mrs Ridgely's Corner. Thank you so much for going on the podcast. Come on again when you've done the next one. Thanks, Dan. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books but in our own lives as well.
I have faith in you.